I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this program is 70 over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. Be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. My name is Lucia de Respinus. I'm 94 and I live in New York City. So I taught industrial design at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, up until last year when I was 93. And the first thing I told students when I was teaching is never say no, because once you learn how to design, you can design anything. But they have to understand who they're designing for. And that was always the thing that I kept in the back of my mind. I was working at Sandgren and Murtha, and they were basically corporate identity designers. And Dunkin' Donut had asked that they redesign their Dunkin' Donut logo. So I went over and um, walked into the graphics department. And they had been working for about a couple of weeks. And I looked, and they were all brown and black and white. And I said, no, donuts are fun. And I jumped up and clapped my hands. Their color, their parties, their... And they said, well, you're an industrial designer. You're not a graphic designer. You don't understand this stuff. I said, well, I've got an idea. Take that hot dog lettering. Why don't you make it pink and orange, my daughter's favorite colors for all of her birthday parties? Every time she had a party, she wanted pink and orange balloons. No, no, we can't do that. We've got all these finished, and we're going to go on Friday to Boston where the main uh, office was. I said, just do one, please. All right, we'll do it. And everybody was sort of snickering. You know, here's this freelancer. She wants to change everything. Oh, yeah, sure. So Monday morning, I went in and I said, so what happened? And one of the guys said, they were all guys, of course. They said, "Um, they chose yours. So now my daughter, who is now 58, has gone through her life looking at Dunkin' Donut signs and saying, they're my colors. <laughs> but a lot of the designers that I knew, all men in industrial design, were very separate from the real world. And their stuff looks it. 
but as an industrial designer, aren't you trying to make the world better? We don't exist for a uh, an exalted group. We have to think what makes it beautiful for the average person. That's why we exist. It's because I had a daughter. And when I was thinking about donuts, I was thinking about her birthday parties. And that's a part of everybody's life. Now, if I had not had a child and she had never wanted pink and orange, I never would have done that. That was Lucia Derespinus. And from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70, a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. My guest this week is Dr. Anthony Fauci. It may feel like 540 days ago, Dr. Fauci became an overnight celebrity, but he's actually been one of the nation's top infectious disease doctors for decades now. As the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984, Dr. Fauci has advised and guided seven presidents through everything from swine flu to Ebola to the AIDS crisis. His work has profoundly changed the way that we treat and prevent the spread of new life-threatening diseases. We've all heard Dr. Fauci speak over this last year and a half. But what I really wanted to hear was what this time has felt like for him. Honestly, I wanted to know how he's doing. Whether unlike so many of us right now, he's somehow holding up okay. And since he's asked every day when we'll get back to normal, I wondered what getting back to normal would mean for him. Dr. Anthony Fauci is 80 years old. Dr. Fauci, what, a, uh, what an honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time. Uh, my pleasure, Max. Thank you for having me. Um, I've got a lot of questions, but to start... I don't know if this is your experience, but in my experience, lots of people in my life right now, um, I would say they're like, they're not doing great. The prospect of things shutting down again and, you know, being as far into this as we are and not knowing what's going to happen, it's, it just feels like people are down, uh, particularly over the last couple of weeks. And it made me wonder, like, um, how are you? You know, I'm, I'm fine in the sense that uh, this is what I do. You know, uh, this is the life that I've chosen. Uh, and it's a life of responding. You know, I, I'm a physician, I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher. But one of my responsibilities, not the only one, but one of them, which has really in many respects dominated my life over the last 37 years that I've been the director of the Institute, is to respond from a scientific and public health standpoint to emerging outbreaks of infectious diseases. And when I first took over the job in 1984, it was with HIV AIDS, the first few years of AIDS, which has now really persisted as a major global health issue for the last 40 years. And over the years, we responded to 
different outbreaks of influenza, pandemic flu, Ebola, Zika, chikungunya, and now it's COVID-19. So my my life has always been very intense, uh, depending upon the acuteness of the situation, uh, the level of stress varies. But COVID-19 is really something over the top in the sense that it combines the most intense uh, of this stress that you would get when you're dealing with an outbreak that has already killed about 625,000 Americans, uh, over 4 million people worldwide, and we still don't have it really under control. And that's the, the very uh, challenging news. So we are now in a surging stage of the infections. People are down because we went up and then we came down and then we went up. Now we came down and now we're going back up again. Um, so when you ask how I'm doing, uh, this is what I do, but it's, in, it's intensely stressful. <laughs> but the thing that is a little bit different about this is, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is a cut above all the others for the, for the intensity of it. It's almost like there's no way you'd be able to be okay if you hadn't gone through all the rest of it. I think that it has been an incremental building up of experience, of knowledge, of instinctive way to respond to things that fortunately for the most time are correct, but, you know, not always. Um, But the thing about this is that it's been so intense that I can honestly say that I really have not taken a day off in over a year and a half, 18, 19 months. I have not taken a single day off. It's not to feel sorry for myself at all, because that's the nature of what I do. I mean, it's such an intensive rapid moving situation that, you know, it's almost like you don't have time to take any time off. There's too many important things going on. Are you able to take care of yourself? Um, You know, in the beginning of the outbreak, when things were really beginning to explode for the first time, I I, I really didn't take good care of myself. Uh, I have an extraordinary family that's very supportive, my wife and my three daughters, but my wife particularly is an incredibly intelligent, insightful person who saw that I was really wearing myself down because I was getting four hours of sleep a night for like 10 nights in a row. That's completely impossible to do, you know, when you're working 18, 19 hours a day. So she really, you know, grabbed me by my lapels and said, okay, now you're going to drink water, you're going to eat, and you're going to sleep at least six hours a night. So I'm actually physically much better off now than I was. The one thing I do every day, if I could, it is doesn't happen every day, but I try, is I used to be a marathon runner and a 10K runner. My wife and I together, I've run several marathons and dozens and dozens of 10Ks. But I'm 80 years old now. So the idea of running three to four miles a day uh, doesn't do good for your back and your knees. So I power walk, which I find is as exhilarating in some respects as running. You don't quite get the endorphins up as you do when you run, but it is a stress reliever, particularly when you do it, you know, together with my wife gives us a chance to chat for a bit. Yeah. People tell you about the uh, runner's high, but not, not as often about the power walking high. No, there's not a lot of power walking high. (laughs) You know, having run so many races, the, the, the great feeling you get when you're running and going fast 
But there is something about uh, getting your mind at least off it for a little while for that hour that you do a power walk. How you make time for yourself is um, deeply fascinating to me, and I could talk to you about it for a long time, but, but we don't have a lot of time here. And so I want to get back to what you were saying earlier about the building up of experience that allows you to do this work, specifically the work you did with the AIDS epidemic. What did you learn then that you're applying now to COVID? You know, there, there were subtle things you learned and, and rather concrete things that you learn. The subtle things that you learn is never underestimate an epidemic outbreak of an infectious disease because it can be insidious and highly impactful the way HIV was. I remember like it was yesterday sitting in my office right here at the NIH reading the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report about five gay men from Los Angeles who had this strange disease that no one could figure out. Had, nobody had any idea what the cause was, much less what it was. And then a month later, in the same Morbidity Mortality Weekly report, which is kind of a report of new diseases from the CDC, 26 men, curiously all gay, with this extraordinary disease that was destroying their immune system, and we didn't know what it was. Um, I, I, I made a major decision in my life at that point, which really transformed my entire life. I decided I was going to turn around completely the direction of my career and study this absolutely fascinating new disease, which at the time was only known to infect about 100 gay men in the United States. And we had no idea, if you had asked me, fast forward, 40 years later, will it have already killed 36 million people hmm. and infected 77 million people and have 36 million people living with HIV? But it was insidious because it was an infection that when you first get it, you, you can go for years without symptoms until your body's immune system collapses. Then you get a whole array of opportunistic infections. The contrast with COVID-19 is that it's a completely explosive outbreak. Uh, you know, in a period of a year and a half has, you know, killed 4 million people. Um, so you, you always learn that you can't predict what's going to happen with an infectious disease. The other thing I learned was you've got to engage the community when you're trying to interact. You've got to engage the community to do those public health measures. The things that we spoke about before vaccines and even after vaccines, masking, social distancing, avoiding crowds, all the kinds of things that we learn that when you have an evolving outbreak, People think you have all the answers on day one, and that's the real critical issue. It's like they always say, what would you have done differently if you knew in January of 2020 um, what you know now? Well, of course, you would do an extraordinary amount differently because, A, we weren't even sure it was efficiently transmitted from person to person. Then we found that it was efficiently transmitted. Then we found out it was incredibly well transmitted. Then we found out that 50% of the infections were transmitted by people who had no idea that they were infected. They were completely asymptomatic. 
So what would I have done different right. 18 months ago like everything? <laughs> but that's part of what makes your job so hard, at least from the outside, is like you're supposed to be the voice of reason, but you don't have all the data. Like yeah. you're, you're supposed to know it all and you don't know it all. So how, how do you do that? Well, if you don't know what you should know at a time that you know it, <laughs> then you're, you're remiss. But when you're living through an evolving outbreak, and you have no way of knowing certain things, then of course you would have done it differently if you had all the knowledge. You know, and and it's very pronounced with COVID-19, but there was a little bit of that um, back in the early years of HIV, you know, when we, you know, had no idea what the etiologic agent was. Well, there's one other thing about that time that feels similar to now, which is that a large group of people were really mad at you personally. For a different reason. <laughs> for almost the exact opposite reason. So for people who, who don't know this history, AIDS activists were fighting for access to experimental drugs that were being developed. And up until that point, the system was that the drugs had to go through multiple rounds of trials to see if they were safe and then to see if they were effective before they could go out to the general public, right. but because AIDS was essentially a death sentence, any access to anything that might work could save lives. And so what the activists were saying was, let us into these trials earlier. And for a while, you were saying, this is the way it is done. But through these conversations that you went and had with activists and gay communities across the country, you changed your mind and you changed the way that this system works. You allowed people into these clinical trials before the drugs had been proven to be effective. Totally. Right. It's exactly what it was, was in the beginning, uh, as a scientist and as a public health person, I was actually doing whatever I can to address what this brand new outbreak was and How do we get drugs out there quickly and things like that? But the activists were looking to bring attention to the fact that the old paradigm of how you address an emerging disease, how you develop drugs, how you test them, and how you involve the afflicted community was an antiquated approach in the beginning. And people were dying as a result. Well, yeah. And and it it isn't like we had the magic wand to prevent it. But I was out there very publicly trying to call attention to the things you can do, wear a condom. And I became the face of the federal government. So when the activists decided that they wanted to call attention to what they felt uh, correctly in some respects was an inadequate approach of the federal government. The president, Reagan at the time, was not using the bully pulpit of the presidency to call attention to the risks of this. The, 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 the support of research was not adequate at right. the time. So what did they do? They picked out the face of the federal government, i.e. me. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, it was, you know, these iconoclastic theatrical demonstrations against me. And I think one of the most important, best things I've ever done is that I kept an open mind. And when they did that, 
I said to myself, wait a minute. These people are suffering. They're, they're concerned that they and their colleagues and their friends and their lovers are dying, which they were. And they don't feel that the federal government is paying enough attention and really not on the right track. But no one was listening to them. So they became very confrontative, very disruptive, hmm. including against agencies like the NIH and the FDA. So one and of the personal. best things... Oh, totally personal because I was the, everybody else was running away from it. I was, right. I was the only one that was out there, you know, publicly talking about it. Most, in fact, all of the scientists, when they would demonstrate and try to shut down Wall Street, shut down the Golden Gate Bridge, shut down St. Patrick's Cathedral, everybody would they hear about the activists and they would run away. And every time the activists became more provocative, they would pull back even more, the scientists. So I said, wait a minute, I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> I'm going to surprise them. I'm going to listen to what they were saying. And when I began to listen to what they were saying, they were making perfect sense. Right. And I put myself in their shoes and I said, holy mackerel, if I were in their shoes, I would do exactly what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to bring them in around this table that I'm sitting at right now, actually, historically, when instead of when they were demonstrating, the police were trying to arrest them. I said, no, don't arrest them. Bring up five or six of their leaders and let's sit down and talk about this. And I listened to them and, and boy, did they make sense. And that's when we started a dialogue of getting the activists involved in all of the things we did, the planning, the implementation, the discussions. The and the clinical trials. Right. And I think that's a connection that people today might not make, which is the reason that we had COVID vaccines 10 months ago before they were officially approved by the FDA was because they were emergency authorized. And that emergency authorization, the idea of that, is born out of this experience that you had in the 80s with the AIDS epidemic. And so right. when you think about these people who are mad at you now, for, for whom you have become like the, the face of the enemy, when you put yourself in their shoes, how do you make sense of the fact that they don't want to take the vaccine? Well, uh, we're talking about apples and oranges now, Max. A <laughs> apples and oranges. So let me explain. <laughs> so here's the deal. For the people who really feel that they don't want to get vaccinated, they're a heterogeneous group. There are people who don't want to get vaccinated because they want more information. So today, interestingly today, the FDA gave a full licensure to the Pfizer which many people were saying, well, I'm waiting for the full licensure. I don't trust that I think you went too, too um, quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you never get uh, accusatory to those people. You never confront them because even though some of their concern is based on misinformation. Do you believe in your heart that it's going to change now that this is official? I, I think about 20% or so, and I, that's a pure estimate, Max. I don't know the right answer maybe 20 to 30% of people who were really, truly, sincerely waiting to get the full approval because they sincerely felt that it wasn't safe or effective, even though we have given it to 200 million doses so far, they still needed further proof. And they have that now. 
But there is something different about the uh, confrontation against me now. Just don't want to get vaccinated because many of those people, if you explain to them why it's important, give them the information they need, they'll get vaccinated. I'm not talking about them. What's different here, Max, dramatically 180 degree difference is that I'm being attacked by conspiracy theorists, you know, Fauci is this, he's that, he's, he's the other thing. It, and it's really more of an attack without a reason. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe the reason is that during the Trump administration, I, I had enough integrity to get up and say, you know, I'm sorry, but what you're saying is not correct. And I think that probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Whereas back in the era of AIDS, the confrontation against me was to get my attention for something that was really right. They needed to get more attention and they needed to have more of a voice in what the government was doing. Whereas now it's merely just attacking for the sake of attacking. I mean, all you got to do is get on Fox News every right. night <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. So you, you think it's just that you went against their guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Was that a mistake then? No, it was the right thing to do because I wasn't against anybody. I was trying to get the right information and the correct information out. So there was never anything that was uh, a confrontative or against uh, a, a person, certainly not the president. I have a great deal of respect for the office of the presidency. It was when something is said that's completely incorrect, as a scientist, in order to maintain my integrity and my obligation to the American people, I had to correct things that were incorrect. But did you know at the time that there was a chance or even a good chance that that would risk politicizing the science? Well, you know, you're asking a question. I never want science to be politicized. But if I agreed with something that was incorrect or I went along with it, I'd be violating my own fundamental principles of integrity to do that. Right. So I had to come out and say, no, you know, that's not so. Hydroxychloroquine is not a cure. You know, the pillow man is not right. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, you just can't, you can't go along with those things. And I didn't mean at all as anything against the presidency or the president. I mean, if you go back and look, it wasn't anything that I've ever said against a person. It was always against misinformation. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. 
and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I know that you're not going to talk too much about the former president, and, and I understand that I'm not going to ask you about it, but, but can you tell me what it felt like in those moments to stand up and say, actually, that's not what it says? Like, what, what was going on in your gut and in your heart in those moments? No, it was a very, uh, very tense and intense feeling that I had to do the right thing and whatever the consequences, I'm willing to accept. Were you nervous? You know, I wouldn't say nervous. I, I would say kind of in a zone. Yeah, you were, you were in like, <laughs> like your, your version of the flow state. Well, no, like, you know, uh, go back to an analogy, a metaphor. So you're on a landing craft in Normandy and the door opens and you run out <laughs> and you're trying to make it to the hill without getting shot. <laughs> but you know you got to make it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, th there is one thing that I think could explain it, Max, is that the first time I ever went in to uh, a brief a president was Ronald Reagan back in the early 1980s. And a very close friend of mine who had been working at the White House for years in the Nixon administration, when I was getting ready to go in, he said, whenever you go into the West Wing to, to brief the president, say to yourself that this may be the last time that I'm going to walk into the White House. Because if you go in there and you get overcome by the awe and the majesty of it, and you really feel very strong about wanting to get asked back, you might hold back in telling the president something that's an inconvenient truth that he might not want to hear. Mm -hmm. And if you hold back because you want to get asked back, you've made a big mistake. So you just got to tell the truth. And if they are good enough to respect you, they'll ask you back again. And here you are. It's been uh, 40 years of continually being asked to come back to the White House. Right, exactly. So that means that that really works. You know, there's some bumps across the road, and the bumps were last year. There were some serious bumps. Maybe there's a little bit of a gap between bumps and storming the beach in Normandy, but I, I think I understand <laughs> what you're saying. I, I want to know a little bit about how you're thinking about what comes next for you. I mean, you're saying that you're fine, and I'm glad we've got it on the record for everyone who's listening, but... How much longer can you do this? Like, what, what, what do you want from the rest of your career? Well, you know, there is some unfinished business. There's no way I'm going to walk out in the middle of a catastrophic pandemic when I've spent my entire professional career chasing outbreaks. So at least until we get this under control, that's, you know, whether that's next year, I hope it's before then, uh, but also there are some things with HIV 
that I really want to wrap up. You know, I, I don't think I'm going to end HIV outbreak during my professional, what's ever left of my professional career. But I think there are some major dents that we could still make. I think in the United States, we could dramatically diminish the number of new infections per, mm. per year, uh, both with, you know, treatment as prevention, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and hopefully even a modestly effective vaccine. So the one thing that I am is a realistic person. I mean, I actually think even at my age that I'm going on all cylinders, in fact, even more. There's nothing that feels different about doing the job at 80 than it did at 70 or 60 or 50? No, it, it, it just does. You know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think I'm 40 and I have to slap myself and say, <laughs> excuse me, it's 2021. <laughs> where, does, where does that come from? Like, how, how have you held on to that feeling for so long? Uh, you know, it's very interesting, but I don't know because it, it, it gets a little odd when you're dealing with people who are, you know, uh, 50 years younger than you and, and you don't really feel like you're much older than they are and you find out that you're old enough to be their grandfather. <laughs> it's a strange feeling. So you're saying you're, you're sort of walking through the halls of the NIH sort of like um, feeling like it's 1990 and then all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you're like, oh my God, look at that guy. <laughs> it's exactly right. Every once in a while I wake up and I think I'm 45 and then I go to shave and I say, ah. <laughs> All right, so you feel like you're firing on all cylinders. But on some level, you got to be thinking about your legacy too, right? Right. Yeah. What do you think about that? What do you, what do you think of as your legacy? You know, my legacy is going to be judged by other people. So I can't describe what my legacy is. I can say what I realize what I've done. Uh, and that will be judged historically by others, which is appropriate. You shouldn't be you know, making judgments on yourself. But, you know, I'm I've, interested in your judgments on yourself. That's well, what I'm asking about. Well, I've, I've been at the NIH over 50 years. I've been a physician scientist and a public health official. I've made, you know, some substantial contribution to the research endeavor. And the thing I like about that is whether I say it or I don't say it, it's the matter of record. People just can go look in the <laughs> literature of what you've done. So you can't make it up, nor can you diminish it. It's there. Yeah. You know, that's the good thing about that. And I made a number of, I think, important discoveries in my field. The development of drugs, the development of prevention that has really turned mm -hmm. HIV AIDS from a universally fatal disease to a manageable chronic disease. But one of the other things that I did purely almost by, by accident, because a president, President George W. Bush, asked me to go do it, was to figure out a way how we can get drugs and prevention and care for the developing world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, which has probably saved about 15 million lives already. It's incredible. And I had the, the, the privilege of being asked by a president to put that together, I didn't do it alone, but I played a major part of it. He gave me the Presidential Medal of Freedom for doing that. So that's a very important milestone in my career. 15 uh, million lives. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now with COVID, the research enterprise that I've led mm -hmm. for now 37 years has led to the fundamental basis that made 
the vaccines possible. What would the kid who graduated from Regis, the 5'7 kid who's the captain of the basketball team, what would he think about everything you just said? What, what would, how would he understand what, what you've been able to do? I, I don't think he would in, the, in, a, in, in, in my 15, 16, 17-year-old basketball days at, <laughs> at Regis High School I don't. I could not even have imagined uh, the opportunities I've had. You know, some people who are as talented or even more talented than I am, maybe didn't have the opportunity to have this kind of an impact. So I just feel very fortunate and privileged that, in addition to whatever you know, genetic or God-given capabilities I have, that I was able to utilize them and be put in a position to be able to work mm. with President Bush or to do the kind of science I did because I went to medical school and had the privilege of coming to the NIH and learning how to be a researcher. I mean, you have to have certain fundamental core capabilities, but also you have to have the opportunity placed in front of you to be able to do those things. Well, there is something that feels unique to me and innate that allows you to have gone through the last 540 days and say that you're doing okay. Yeah, I'm doing fine. <laughs> I'm sure everyone has asked you in every conversation you have had for the last 540 days, when are we going to get back to normal? But my last question for you is, what is normal going to mean for you? Like, what are you looking forward to? What do you, what do you want for yourself on the other side of this? You know, Max, that's a great question. Maybe the most problematic question that you've asked me in the last how long we've been talking to each other is that for me personally, I don't even know what normal is going to mean because I've been living a life of, of responding to these outbreaks and essentially having everything I do be science and public health and clinical medicine and taking care of patients and running an institute and getting involved with advising now seven presidents. So if all that goes away, I don't have any idea what normal is going to be like. I just don't know. I just want to be... 70 Over 70 is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixer is Davey Sumner, and Jenna Weiss-Berman and I are the executive producers. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights. And the music you're listening to right now is by Arthur Russell, who would have been 70 this year. Original music by Terrence Bernardo, additional music by Noble Kids, and music licensing by Dan Kanishkawi. Our cover art is by Myra Kalman, who's 72. And our episode art is by Lynn Staley. She's 73, she's my mom, and she's had a pretty rough week. Mom, feel better. Special thanks to Emerald O'Brien, Ann Oplinger, and Ed Young. Thank you, Lucia DeResmanis, and thank you, Anthony Fauci. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. Combination. 
It's a while.